You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 79. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. All right, you have reached another Local Maximum, the 79th Local Maximum, to be precise. It seems like a day doesn't go by without another mention of augmented reality or virtual reality. And when it comes to emerging technology, I usually like to break it down in a couple ways. First, there's the kind of separating hype from reality portion of it. But second, and this is the other side of the coin, is kind of imagining what could be once this tech reaches its full potential. Because only when you're thinking in that creative sort of long-term way, that's when you're going to get the inspiration, what to build, what to invest your time in, where, where to, uh, you know, wh- what direction to go in. And people need that, not just a litany of complaints, which sometimes we do too. But anyway, back to these computer-generated worlds. Those uh, things have been around for a while, you know, with, with gaming. I guess Pac-Man is a, is a user, is a computer-generated world, and like 3D rendering and whatnot. But so much work and so much attention has gone into augmented reality and virtual reality, AR and VR, in recent years. I mean, you know, just this week, I was looking at the New York Times. You have Apple working with the new museum here in New York to create this giant autom- augmented reality art exhibit in which you hold up your iPhone camera and you see all sorts of things in Central Park here in New York. Uh, According to the New York Times, it's well choreographed. It starts at the Apple Store. I guess it's the one in Fifth Avenue. I'm not sure. And they work with specific artists. I don't know exactly what you see, but it looks like it involves skywriting and uh, critters and rainbows, apparently. I should probably check it out if it sticks around for a while. Uh, Maybe I'll have time. So on one hand, yeah, this is cool, but it probably won't be a normal thing we do on our phones daily yet, daily yet. You know, Apple's been hitting on augmented reality hard for many years, lots of demos, and they w- I think they wouldn't do it if they didn't think there was a good chance that this would become ubiquitous someday. Probably not one year or two years, but, you know, it could be five or ten years. And it sort of reminds me of how they pushed Siri and then uh, Amazon comes along a few years later and creates Alexa, it creates the virtual assistant that goes mainstream. So uh, coming back to the topic of augmented and virtual reality, it's not something I know nearly enough about. So I reached out to my former coworker, Timothy West, who came back to the Foursquare office actually sometime last year and gave us what was really a killer demo on uh, some of the virtual reality worlds and interfaces that she's working on at Unity Labs, where she is the director of XR Research, that's augmented reality, virtual reality, and mixed reality. And I, I asked what the difference between all those were. Uh, so I knew that I had to find out more. This conversation, it runs the gamut from comparing uh, these technologies to what you might have seen and assumed that they are from your favorite movies uh, to how we might start seeing them in our lives and where AI and machine learning fits into the equation. So let's bring it up. Timony West, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Thank you so much for having me, Max. This is exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And um, because, especially since, you know, I just returned to Foursquare uh, a couple weeks ago. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Congratulations. I left and I came back. Um, I am just working directly on the innovation lab. So we are just going to try to produce cool consumer products and just 
put them out there and see what works and what doesn't, and hopefully we'll produce a lot of stuff. So it's um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I probably shouldn't say this, but I don't want to spend more precious years of my life uh, optimizing pipelines. But <laughs> I, I hope my coworkers are not listening. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's solid work. It's good work. It's work yeah. that needs to be done. You've done it. Uh, exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, so, and also, you know, since I, I want to try to build new products here, I think that, like, augmented reality and virtual reality is kind of like a gap in my knowledge. I don't know enough about it, so that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I'm really excited to have you on the program today. Uh, so, yeah, I, I want to ask you about augmented and virtual reality, but first, I, I just want to know, like, how did you get there? You have a background in design. Yep. You've done a lot of great stuff. When did you decide that you wanted to start working in AR and VR? Sure. So, I mean, as you know, I'd worked in consumer digital for a very long time. And uh, I realized at some point that I felt like I needed to make a change in, in the type of software that I worked on. So I, I always thought, you know, consumer, consumer digital products were, I, and I think still are in, incredibly crucial to getting people to use computers um, more effectively and better to the best of their imagination to really transmit knowledge. But at the time, especially, it seemed like the only way to make a product that could really last, be trusted, that was solid, that was very featureful was to move into professional grade software. So I decided to make that choice um, around uh, 2013 that I would move into what, what I would call professional tooling. Um, as yeah. So what's, the, what's the difference? Can you give like some examples on that? Because yeah, sure. we don't know what the, I, I, I would call it like software that pays the rent, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, all, all of the kind of tools that you like a, a text or a code editor would be a good example of that. Um, a, a design tool like sketch or an Adobe suite product or Autodesk or CAD, or, you know, if you're, um, if you're an audio uh, like musician, for example, any audio tool. So the, the kind of more, they, they usually tend to be uglier. They usually tend to be a bit overwhelming. They usually have a, a very long onboarding process, but those are the sort of the, the kind of heavy lifting of software tools that, um, that people tend to pay more real money for because they provide such, such value to them. Right. Yep. Well, so, what were you doing before though? You were still. <laughs> oh, before, before then I was in consumer. So I, right. I after that Foursquare actually. It's um, like Foursquare, right? Yep. I co-founded a startup called um, AlphaWorks that was sort of a, a little bit before its time. Unfortunately, it was designed to help people invest in the local um, businesses around them that, that they knew and loved. So you could sort of have a community shared um, investment platform anticipating that we'd have legislation change that allows anyone to um, invest in not just angel or sort of like people with a more disposable income. Unfortunately, the legislation was not passed. So that was my lesson learned about starting a startup when you're you're dependent on government passing legislation. Ah, yeah, it's rough. (laughs) Yep. Um, But I'd already known that I wanted to be more into that type of software. So uh, I had worked on and off actually with my now boss, uh, the VP of labs at unity, Silvio Duan on various startups over the years. And he had just changed from a long-term advisor to actually joining the company as a VP. And so I remember him calling me and saying, he's just very, um, excited, like very, very inspiring, uh, uh, 
Quebecois and it was like, Timony, you got to join. It's going to be so cool. It's going to be awesome. And I was like, well, this is really aligned <laughs> with, with what I've been wanting to do. Um, in any case, and I would actually been working on some visual scripting tools for, um, for Samsung just prior. So I, uh, decided to take the plunge and, and join on at unity. And it so happened. I tried out virtual reality before. And while I always loved the concept, it actually made me quite sick when I tried out the DK one. So for me, it was kind of a non-starter. Sorry, go ahead. When you when you put on the glasses, it got you dizzy, and yes. is that what you're saying? Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah, the the original yeah. uh, for various various um, technical physical reasons, which I can get into in a bit. Uh, but then, as I was joining on, it was just before the Vive um, developer kit and the DK. Uh, sorry, not the DK two, but the um, uh, shoot was it Santa Cruz. The sort of the fully tracked headset was coming online. And we knew that they were coming and we knew two things. One, that Unity, you know, is the best 3D creation tool and we wanted to make sure that it really worked well for virtual reality and augmented reality. The HoloLens was going to drop the next year. Uh, And secondly, figure out, you know, now I work for a 3D company. What can we do with these amazing new, basically, display types that allow you to step into 3D or have 3D objects in front of you as if they were real world objects? What what can we unlock with that? How can we use these these new types of hardware to make 3D creation even easier? And not just 3D creation, but people, you know, interacting with 3D objects or interacting with computer objects as if they were more realistic than just a you know piece of hardware with a glass screen in front of you. So that's been my mandate over the last now four years is figuring out the tools that we need to build at Unity to make better augmented and virtual reality experiences. And then also figure out how best we can use augmented and virtual reality to to kind of open up and unlock that type of creation or interaction types for all types of, of people, not just developers, but, but anyone. And it has been certainly some of the most fascinating and challenging work uh, of my career and no regrets, I think. I'll, I will be spending the rest yeah. of my life figuring out how these particular um, new new types of I you know the, there can be standalone computers. They can also be just different types of computer displays. They can work in in tandem with other types of computers. So how do these fit in with the rest of the ecosystem? And how can we make all of the computing devices that we have today, from the watch to the glasses? To your phone, to your computer, to the cloud, work together in tandem to create sort of a ubiquitous computing platform that makes sense, works well, works across platforms, and and really allows people to kind of unlock the power of computers to do really interesting and exciting things. So, yeah, so I, I just want to cool. jump in and, and mention, like you said, when you jumped to you know, what's called professional grade software, like some of them are clunkier, they don't look as good, but like the stuff you're working on, if I could show the demos, unfortunately, this is an audio show, but uh, <laughs> we can, I'll, I'll, on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 79, I'll, I'll link to some of the best ones. Like these are stunning, like really cool demos. Yeah, they are. They're extremely cool. I will say though, and I don't mean to... One of the things that I have learned um, working on this is what you imagine in your head is very rarely what it is actually like. When you see um, an example, I, I, I was just talking about this recently, but there the media is full of every Marvel movie, every Harry Potter movie, every uh, uh, Star Wars movie 
has someone, for example, being able to pick up a really big object and move it, usually by like kind of looking at it and using their hands, like the force or their hands, like magic or their hands, like superpowers, but whatever, like Magneto, whoever it is, they're kind of like, look at an object, face their palms towards it, and then kind of like move it with the power of their minds. Right. And I guess like Star Wars, probably the canonical example. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. move the ship, move yeah. the, right? Move the ship exactly with your mind. Uh, yeah, but Magneto like lifting up, you know, the gates or something like that. Oh, right, right, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's what you got in your head, right? That's that's the idea that you. Right. These are the powers that you're going to give me, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's what you think. Uh, so the reality is this: a that's actually kind of a terrible and tedious interaction pattern. You can do that one time, and it looks dramatic, and it looks great in movies, but the, you don't want to do that a million times. And when it comes to computers and making things on a computer, you have to do everything a million times. You have to type a million times. You have to click a million times. You have to delete key a million times. Like the way we we work with computers is even if you moved objects around, you're probably moving around a million objects because you're setting up an entire world. When you're rearranging your house, you don't have to look at your every single dining room table and move it with your mind like that, right? You want to just go over and then kind of shove them around and, and, you know, move all six chairs in very quickly and efficiently. So there's this there's a very strong disconnect between the sort of dramatic interpretation of telekinesis, I guess, you know, um, sort of this magic and the reality of a, how we actually want to work and then B how we actually do work and must work with computers. So that's been uh, a, a really big challenge to, to get people a little bit more sensible of how they're even using computers to this day and then how that would translate to that kind of experience. Now, the reality is it's extremely cool to walk into a VR headset and be in your world and be able to move things around and move the world around, and you basically become God. It's incredibly uh, uh, liberating. It, it feels awesome. It is super cool. It is super fun. It's like everything becomes toys, and you are the ultimate Lego God. Like, that's – it's just – it's cool. The downside is there's a lot of different things that you do to explain to a computer – what you want to do that don't translate well to the real world. So for example, Max, if you and I were in the same space talking, I'd be gesturing. And if I wanted to draw your attention to like a cup, I would point at the cup. I would look at the cup. I would gesture. I would do a lot of different sort of small things that have nothing to do with what I'm talking about to kind of show you where, what it is, where I want your attention to be focused. Yeah, sure. Only recently have we had computers that had sensors on them like cameras, like photoreceptors, like microphones, et cetera, that could even take in that kind of subtle, more subtle input that wasn't just a direct button press. And then it, what we do usually instead uh, of having this sort of sensor-driven Im- uh, ambient information is just have a bunch of bu- button presses, which allows you to have a bunch of hotkeys or gesture swipes, right? That's, you, that's what we do today, very tactile, physical inputs instead. But we can see a world where we have computers that have all of these different types of sensors and can take in these different types of more natural movement to in, or, or, or eye gaze or voice or physical sort of tactile feedback, but that's more subtle, to kind of infer intent and then have the computer sort of intuit whatever it is you want to do. We're working towards that in a couple of different ways. Um, first is by taking that sensor information and gleaning out meaning from it and we what we're doing that uh with say gesture recognition for hands or uh natural language processing for voice i think everyone is aware of 
natural language processing now to a certain degree because of, of um, things like Alexa and Siri. Although, unfortunately, at this stage, we all know it's kind of nascent. So, yeah, like give me an example. Like what would, how would, I could understand gesture in terms of, you know, manipulating a virtual world, but w- how would natural language be used? Like would it almost be like command line, like pick up cup? Now I'm sure it's something else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there, for, for, let me back it up a step. For every type of input that we've mentioned, that we've got audio inputs, we have physical inputs, uh, and then we have visual inputs. And actually, gesture feels like a physical input to a human, but to a computer, it's actually visual because you're you're the right. computer using a camera to analyze your 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 hand pose. In the same way that if you're using a Snapchat filter, the Snap um, algorithm notices you're smiling and does something. It's very similar to that. So uh, for each of those things that I just described. You could put those other- funny, like, uh, could put those funny things in your mouth when you smile. Or exactly. Or smile really huge or yeah. something like that. Raise your eyebrows, open your mouth. <laughs> yeah. So Peter, those are no different than you pointing at a thing or making an okay or using the bloom gesture on a HoloLens. It's all, it's all just a computer vision looking for a very specific type of cue. So for all of the different things that we just talked about, there are a million different methods out there. Not a million. I'm going to be realistic here. I'm going to say there's probably about 5,000 different ways that you could solve the same thing, or at least different tech stacks or different solutions that people have tried in academia. And then, out in the real world, all the way from from very custom uh, small scale startups up until the major fan companies, which tend to be sitting on large piles of data, and they either uh, come up with their own uh, machine learning technology tech stacks, um, and then and then train up their own data sets. Uh, TensorFlow, for example, is a, a Google initiative, um, or they do acquisitions, and then via the acquisitions, they get that machine learning technology to to um, detect whatever it is they want to detect. And by detect, I mean they could be detecting uh, wake words. So this is to get back to your question about NLP, natural language processing. You could try to transcribe every single word, uh, listen to all of them, and then reorganize them into some semblance of something that that could be then used to, to create a computer command. This is very tedious and slow, as you might assume you could also um, just listen for specific wake words or specific types of words and then infer intent based on the keywords Um, wake words are things like hey siri or hey alexa that we use to wake up the computer but it's also um, basically just a technique for listening for specific types of commands in order to perform actions more quickly because if there's one thing that humans are particularly bad at it's being incredibly succinct when we talk we're bad at it we don't do it very well at all we're much that's why it's very tedious when you to read a transcription, for example. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and so what would you do with this information? Would it be like um, uh, almost like the same as gesture? Well, if I point at something and then also say the name of it, then like, what? I mean, your goal, I mean, maybe you could back up a little bit. Like your goal is to try to build worlds that, you know, people can manipulate, right? So um, I would say my goal is to yeah. make computers um, – forgiving towards humans to such a degree that humans can start to genuinely interact with them in a way that that exposes uh, their imagination and their knowledge to the best of their abilities so that we can 
all continue to grow on each other's knowledge, make better decisions, make better long-term decisions, um, start to use computers as a prosthetic brain, and eventually become galactic citizens that travel the universe. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, great. This is the, a good point to then back up a little bit and then go through some a little bit of definitions. So people want to hear about, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality. And then there's this other term, uh, mixed reality. So can we just define these real fast? Sure. Someone's going to be annoyed by me saying whatever I'm about to say next. And so I apologize. <laughs> That's how I feel a lot when I'm, I'm, I'm teaching stuff and when I talk about probability on the show, but that's in any field, but uh, yeah, we don't know. Yep. So, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so there's something called a uh, Mulgrim spectrum of reality, which was uh, made, I believe in the seventies and it's a, a continuum of, of realities. So okay. with that sort of classic, um, academic vernacular, but I'm going to assign it to kind of modern technologies because that is a little bit dated now. Virtual reality is when the world around you is completely digital and you're ensconced in it. It tends to be opaque. It tends to be, you know, uh, you stepping into that. I always use the analogy of um, the aha video take on me when the woman goes into the cartoon world. Or I guess you could say like in cool world, that's that's uh, that's uh, virtual reality, right? It's okay. Virtual. I mean, it could be like when you're just playing a video game um, and you're sort of in a 3D, you know, environment or any environment, really. Um, mm -hmm. It's just the, the virtual VR is just more immersive. Like you could have those glasses on. You can have. That's right. That's right. Yep. It's basically just stereoscopic. It's two. You're staring at two little computer monitors and you're tracked. So the computer has some awareness of you. So it feels more real. Um, in the middle, we have augmented reality. Traditionally, this is just a, a data overlay on top of the real world that does not really interact with the real world. I think this is a bit of a limited definition of it, particularly since there's very few use cases where you would want that. But a good example would be a heads-up display on a fighter jet, for example, where you have contextual information about what you're seeing, but it doesn't uh, have gravity or physics or feel like it's actually a part of the real world in any way. Like the Terminator... I guess heads up display overlay. That would be a good example too. Right, right. There's a lot of movies. This is see uh, people they're think that movies. they're like you just have to watch a lot of movies and then you'll get it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, and 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 mixed reality is just the spectrum, or is it something no, else? That is something else. So, and also, I would add for me, augmented reality also includes something it didn't before, which is completely camera based augmentation of reality that feels more like mixed reality, and this is the camera AR of today. Now, if you think about it, when you look at something in AR in your camera, you're not looking at a digital object on a physical table. You're looking at a computer display that shows you a pass-through feed of a real camera, <laughs> of a camera, uh, taking a photo of a real table and re-rendering it and re-rendering it with like, you know, a ball or a duck or whatever it is that you've got on top of it. So it looks like you're seeing this little window into the digital world, but the reality is what you're looking at is all digital it is just a camera feed so that's mobile reality or mobile augmented reality today now on the end the other end we have mixed reality and mixed reality is when you have digital objects that appear to be interacting with the real world itself so a character a digital character comes and sits down uh, at a real chair uh, you know, in a room and it lines up to the chair and the gravity matches. The gravity doesn't have to match, right? You could have moon gravity or you could have things flying around or dancing around, but effectively they would be, for example, able to hide behind a door and they would be able, you know, if they walked out of the room, you wouldn't be able to see them anymore. They would sort of obey 
the basics of the physical world, the basic laws of the physical world, such that they feel like they're really part of the world. And that is called mixed reality. So could it go in the other direction too? So for example, could I have a uh, fictitious character walk around and then touch the light and then the light really turns on or something like that? Exactly. Yep, exactly. That so, That is truly mixed. They are truly interacting with the real world, but they are digital objects. And that's, I think those are the standards definitions. Uh, there's only a few mixed reality headsets on the market today, the HoloLens and the Magic Leap. And they aren't even really on the market. They're both still developer kits. Okay. So cool. So I wanted to ask a little more about AR. That's probably, that's probably the one that I would likely be picking up if, if I did in, in the near future. But um, I, so I'm imagining a couple things, uh, you know, one of these like cool demos that you might see at an Apple event or a Google event where they kind of place an object in the real world, like we, we talked about. And another is those applications on my phone. There was one where you kind of can hold your phone. I think there's one we did at Foursquare where you hold your phone up and you could see all the names, the different locations mm-hmm. and little balloons on top of them. So you could see where everything is in the city. Mm-hmm. And that stuff always makes great demos, but it feels like you know, the tech doesn't get used on a regular basis. Like I've even five years ago, some of these apps had like hold it up to the building and see stuff. But then it turns out that people don't really do that. So why do you think that is? And, uh, and how could that change? I think it, people don't do it now because it, it's not the best use of the technology. Uh, we've seen a lot of what I would call, and I, I actually don't necessarily mean this even in a negative sense, but I would call them gimmicky apps in that they look cool. Sure. And are fun for a few minutes, but do not have long-term either replay or utility value, right? Right. I mean, they have value in getting people thinking about the technology, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, but yes, yes, I see what you mean. So part of the problem with these is that they are ignoring what is the best use of this particular data? What is the reason why you'd want to expose this data in this way at this time? So, for example, you might see a wayfinding app that shows you on your phone oh, an arrow that shows you directions of how to get to from one place to another. This seems like a great use case, but it is not a great use case because it ignores the fact that the world is already designed to help you get from point A to point B. I don't need to pull out my camera to know what street I'm on. I can look up at a street sign. Right. Right. Now, if we lived in a world where street signs had never been existed and we hadn't designed anything then yes, sure, by all means, this would have been a nice save. It would also have been a very confusing world that we lived in prior to that. <laughs> but, but some types of information just don't require a digital overlay on top of them because we've already augmented the world with other physical you know, information. Like, we, we, we already did it. So um, I think that to mobile, mobile augmented reality is profoundly limited because... It gives us a glimpse into that future of a true mixed reality where we have digital objects that we can interact with in realistic ways, but it is not that. The digital objects are still constrained behind a piece of glass. You truly cannot interact with them in any realistic way because you're not seeing a digital object in the real world. Instead, as I mentioned, you're seeing a rendered camera frame in an opaque display that looks as if it's showing you something. It's actually much more analogous to seeing special effects in a movie than it is to mixed reality on a headset. 
And I know that it looks the same at first blush, but the reality is it's not. So if I'm in my magic leap or if I'm in my hollow lens and I place an object on the table, I can have that object stay on that table. I can pick it up with my hands or a controller. I can genuinely move it around in a much more comfortable and realistic, uh, trustworthy and, and um, uh, flexible way. If I have... If I'm holding up my phone, I have to use my finger to kind of move the object around on a table. And, you know, that's that's about all I can do with it. So there, it's just a fundamental, I, I would say it's fundamentally the wrong medium, but the right idea, at least in the short term. Now, that isn't to say that there isn't some actual advantage to having mobile AR. A good example is that you can use it as a window into virtual reality. And we've done some experiences or some uh, prototypes like that ourselves where someone will be in virtual reality and you can hold up your phone and see what it is that they're doing, if they're drawing or creating or animating or, or playing a game. So it's making use of the fact that mobile AR is basically just a window, but it allows you to move the camera around in a way that you couldn't do if you just were seeing the person in virtual reality on a conventional display. So a lot of these examples that are out there are kind of the wrong technology or the the wrong application uh, for this time. You know, for example, hold the phone up and get directions. Um, well, I could already see what the street sign is. That's the example you gave. So what what would be an example? Have you seen someone do it right? Yeah. Uh, yes, actually, I have. Uh, but I want to. I want to talk a little bit about the future. I think of, of a great example. So okay. there, there are different types of inputs and outputs that we both get from computers and give to computers that make sense at different times. So if you're a surgeon and you're performing a surgery, you are physically limited in what you can do. Your hands are busy, right? You're you know, cutting someone open or sewing them up or whatever. And your eyes are also busy. You have to look at what you're doing. You can't look away and you can't move your hands very much. You are physically extremely constrained. Therefore, the best type of input and output for you at that moment is audio. You're talking to other people, and I'm talking back to you. So you don't have to look at anything. You don't have to read instructions, nor do you have to feel around for, you know, scissors or anything else. So if you watch, you know, a TV show where they're in the operating room, the surgeon is asking for things, and the nurses are just handing them to him or her. Right, right. right. That's that rules. That's, that's a great example of when audio modalities are important. Uh, visual modalities are great for confirmation or to explain things to people very quickly. And physical modalities are great if you're in the flow or if you need some sort of subtle feedback that whatever you just did uh, works. So, for example, uh, if I'm uh, waking up in the morning and I want to know if my coffee maker snoozed when I snoozed my alarm, the best way for me to be able to tell if that was the case is to either hear the coffee maker actually working, but that could get annoying. Maybe I want it to be quieter, but actually when I look at my coffee maker, see some signal that it's turned on and actively working, ideally letting me know how many minutes I have left before the coffee is actually there. I don't really need a chime. I don't really need tactile impact or sorry, uh, haptic feedback. I just need sort of a visual cue there. Uh, another example would be if I'm looking at my Sonos speaker, for example. Right now I can say, you know, Alexa, turn up the volume. And it'll turn up the volume, but it yeah. doesn't tell me And thanks. A good thing I'm wearing headphones right now because otherwise my Alexa would have responded to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, right. Actually, well, we can talk about that in a second. Um, but, okay. But the... 
it doesn't tell you how much it turned up and it doesn't tell you where it was and where it's going. So that would be another right. instance where you probably would actually want visual feedback. You'd want to have a UI that shows you the volume and shows you how many degrees it went up. And it doesn't have that. And it's frustrating not to have that information. Uh, by right, because I'll say like, go to a three and I don't really know what that means. I just, it, yeah, it's maybe three out of one. like a good three, number. Three? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. So when we think about what is what is mixed reality best for, um, let's let's leave uh, AR mobile side because that's a bit more difficult for the reasons I described earlier. It's 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 got some serious limitations. Um, but if I think about what is what is when is it most useful to have a digital object in space in front of me that reacts to the space or reacts to me in a sort of more um, physically present way. One is that an advantage. It's when you are trying to do something that involves more physicality. It's probably not doing something that involves, say, like a lot of text because actually um, opaque uh, illuminate displays are really great for text, especially super dense ones. And we already have phones, iPads, tablets, and keyboards for that. Uh, but let's say you're trying to do something where you're manipulating a 3D object. That's where keyboards and laptops and computers are actually terrible for that. Right, because right. you have to use a series of hotkeys and cursors to try to move what is effectively a two-dimensional world in three dimensions, kind of quasi-move around in different ways with panning and with rotating both the camera and the object itself. Yeah, I have to say, I've been uh, playing around with a Nintendo Switch recently, and I have to say, like, this, I mean, it's pretty cool being able to like move the camera and the character at the same time, but I have, it gets annoying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, if you, if you, you can get used to it, of course, in a well-designed game, sure. the best it can to kind of make sure that you can't screw up, but it's pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. too. You can't move anywhere you want to. You can't move the camera anywhere you want to, or you'd probably mess it up. Right. 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 So, right. So it, there's almost an auto, like how far out the camera is going to be. And then sometimes it screws up and you're like, I'm all the way zoomed in, but I need to see what's going on. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Been there. <laughs> Wait, are you yeah. playing Super Mario Odyssey? Exactly. Yes. That's, <laughs> I'm not very, I'm just taking like the most popular games and going with it. I don't have time to like, you know, it's go into game. all the small games. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm like singing it on the way to uh, <laughs> work and a little bit of Zelda too, uh, which I just started. I do uh, like but, Zelda. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay. So although I, well, games, games are depending on what you're doing, they're kind of difficult because I guess one thing to keep in mind is the real world is already designed. The real world isn't some blank slate. Like we, we already live in a world of, of carefully crafted buildings of street corners with labels on them. Like, you know, if you're going to add value to the real world, it should probably be something that would be very difficult to do physically, like an amazing piece of digital art, for example, something that's too large or too expensive or too time-based to, to bother to do physically that could really help people or add value to their lives or honestly just be beautiful. Um, but but for, for digital yeah. objects that are three-dimensional that you need to manipulate, it does make sense to have a mixed reality because it is we are very, very used to dealing in three dimensions constantly uh, and, and manipulating 3D objects. And it is much harder to translate that back down to two dimensions. So Right now, we live in a world in which to be a 3D modeler or um, sculptor or rigger is uh, kind of a, a very specialized skill. But I've seen um, in programs like Oculus Medium, which is a virtual reality sculpting tool, people craft beautiful uh, sculptures in virtual reality that are just as good as anything you can do in a professional grade tool. And they have 
some advantages and some disadvantages. The biggest disadvantage is that um, you're still using controllers, not your hands. So you do have to kind of remap and relearn. There's a little bit of onboarding. But the advantages that you can then quickly shift what you're doing, you can quickly undo, right? Which is something I wish, I think we all wish we had in the real world. Um, Right. So if you're making a sculpture and you like carved a little bit too much off, there's not much you can. That's right. We can definitely fix it when it comes to to virtual reality. There's no gravity. Your hands won't get as tired. Um, You can Mm. blow it up so you can get even more precise than you could with a uh, real fixed size object, for example. So there's a, there's a tremendous amount of advantages to working with, with, with digital objects. Um, Here's another example. Uh, Temporal UI. I would say. So if I'm on my phone, I can use it to adjust, um, let's say my nest or another type of, um, internet of things device, but I have to pull up my phone. I have to pull up the app. I have to tap on it. Then, you know, so the, the nest is the, um, is the thermostat. Is that right? That's right. Okay, good. Yeah. And nest is a, um, one of many different, digitally connected devices that that they offer that particular company and they also have i believe a um a camera for for your front door like a safety camera and maybe a door lock something like that anyway yeah that sounds right i think yeah first one was the thermostat right right now if i want to use i now the nice thing is I can use my phone to turn my thermostat to be any temperature I want to, whether or not I'm home and away. So that's one advantage. The disadvantage is, however, there is no sense of uh, the digital interface being tied to the application or where I am right now. So I live in a big loft. It has some different hotspots. Ideally, I'd like to be able to go and look at a particular area of the house and see if it's hotter or colder and be able to change the information about it contextually. Unfortunately, you just can't do that today. So that is another advantage to mixed reality. It is providing the correct information in context spatially. Another advantage is, again, um, well, when it comes to temporal information, Right now, a lot of people have, say, giant televisions in their home or small televisions. I myself have a projector, which I like a little bit more because it's quasi-temporal. Oh, yeah. Well, I used to have one. But, um, yeah, I have a a TV. You have a TV. (laughs) Big one. (laughs) So you have this sort of illuminating digital box that is basically black and kind of sits in the corner most of the time. Nothing until until you finally watch it, right? Sure, sure. If, you, if everyone had glasses but had sort of this pin TV, it could kind of look the same. It could feel the same. It could behave the same. It could be a very familiar object. Um, and when you you and I both look through our glasses at this space, maybe we both see the TV. I don't think people are not going to want to look at TVs together anymore, right? Um, sure, yeah. yeah. But, but it, then when it's gone, it could be a picture. It could be a beautiful mural. It could be, you know, it doesn't need to be this this sort of, permanent, large, heavy thing that takes up part of the space in your home. And that's what I mean by temporal UI. It exists when you want it in time. And when you don't want it, it goes away. So uh, 3D objects in space, you can manipulate naturally. Temporal uh, UI that exists when you need it and goes away when you do not need it. Contextual information at the right time. These are all significant advantages to mixed reality interfaces. Okay, yeah. So I'm just imagining the house and office just getting smarter and smarter, and 
Um, but it, not just getting smarter, but it, a big part of getting smart, because when I often say like my software is getting smarter, I'm usually working on the machine learning side. Oh, it's knowing what to do without you kind of asking it. But I think in your case, smarter just means, hey, there's a way more intuitive way for me to understand what's going on in my house and to change it. So uh, you mentioned the, the thermostat uh, example, and you said, okay, well, how would I know what the temperatures currently are in every room in my house, let's say. Mm-hmm. I mean, here in New York City, I have one room, so it's not really that interesting yeah, of a no, problem. No, no. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so how, how would you imagine like that feedback occurring? Would I have like a little map of the home up there or would I have something else? Um, I mean, ideally, anywhere you want in any way you want. Right, so- any way you want. I'm yeah. I'm a big believer, increasingly so, in that in the future we should really not have applications as they exist today. And instead, what we should have is these data layers that we can pipe into, and it could be data about you, data about your house, data from your calendar, data from your emails, data from you know I don't know blog posts, your podcast, etc. And then we pipe it into different sort of contextual containers that we can bring up when we want to. So when I'm at my computer, they look like conventional computer. Um, Windows with Chrome. If I'm trying to look at something in context in my home, maybe it's sort of like a small, sort of semi-active, minimized version of something if I just need to, for example, hit play next to my speaker. Um, But if I want the full-size interface to come up, I can drill into it and have my Spotify come up and play. Uh, I can also, you know, be walking around on the street and have Spotify show up. So that's what I mean by contextual. They could be pinned to spaces in your home if you want them to be. They could come up connected to your headset, your watch, your phone if you want them to be. They could be dragged from one display to another and therefore change shape. So think about this as sort of responsive design for every type of device that you may have and anywhere that you might choose to be and how you want to see the information at that time. On this show, we talk a lot about machine learning and AI and I heard it suggested that if the goal of AI is to make humans smarter, well, you can't like truly do that unless you give people more powerful tools to manipulate worlds. Like I said before, okay, how do I know what the state of the world is? What's the state of my house? What's the state of my project? And then how can I manipulate it easily? Uh, so, well, where does AI tech fit into your work? Like, do you interface with you know machine learning technology at all, or AI technology oh at God. all? Do do you consider yourself as part of AI or adjacent to it or, or uh, what? Machine learning is the, the foundation on which augmented reality works. And anyone who thinks otherwise needs to dig into it a little bit more. It's just, it's, it's essential. Let me dive into that. Um, yeah. Augmented reality can work today because we've managed to make computers small enough and full stuffed full of enough sensors that they have enough real world information that they can both bring in the real world information, glean some context from it, and then respond to it within a single frame render, which is why I can have, for example, a Star Wars Porg jump from my couch to my floor because it has a mesh knowing where uh, that is in my home. And I can reach out with the controller and, you know, pet the cor- the Porg and the Porg can interact with me. And Wait, is- uh, okay, dumb question. Like, what's a Porg? Oh, Porgs are from... The newest line of Star Wars uh, trilogies, they are the cute little thing that looks like a combination of a rabbit and a penguin. Oh, is that the thing on the island with um, the Jedi Island? Okay, 
Yeah, I get it. Yep, yep. Okay. The little things from Jedi Island. There is a right, magic right. experience where you can have them in your home and you feed them and you take care of them. It is super cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a Tamagotchi. Okay. So in order for that to happen. I we, had a Tamagotchi. I know. I had them too. Yeah. Um, in order for that to happen, we need to not only have a lot of straight up, flat out sensor information uh, and depth perception information. But a lot of what we use to generate things like a mesh of the room, so we know what the physical constraints are and how to actually put objects on a on the mesh as opposed to having them just look like they're falling through the floor um, and also be able to kind of walk around and, and sort of make sense of the world is um, machine learning, analyzing uh, the camera feed, either RGB, black and white, depth if you've got it. Um, same is true for mobile AR, by the way. Extracting out things like uh, edges, plane information, uh, plane stabilization, object recognition, 3D object recognition, image markers in the space, expressions on the human face, gestures in the hands. Uh, those are all different types of machine learning, applied machine learning. And, and each of those is a very difficult problem. Indeed. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and they are not the same. Like they, each of these is... There's no combo here, right? You might be running a bunch of them concurrently, but it's it's at this point there there there's no well actually there I don't know there might be some experimental work done I've I've heard some rumblings, but for most of the time if you're trying to say figure out if something is a cat, you've got one neural net running figuring out like what's a cat. But there's a bunch of different techniques you can learn. You know this um, sure sure machine learning about how you can try to figure out and extract out information about what is a cat. Uh, but it's a very difficult problem, no matter what your data set is, and it gets to be an even larger problem when you're dealing with things like not just 2D photos of cats, but an actual cat that is moving around and seen from many different angles in every every single camera shot. Right. But you also have to have kind of a, like, it's one thing to say, okay, is this a photo of a cat? Yes or no? Like that's, uh, and, and then it's a totally different thing to say, okay, where is the cat in relation to this room? Like what's the 3D model yep. of what this room is is like and what are the rules and how the cat can move like that is a, a whole order of magnitude more complicated yeah actually it's funny faces are for various reasons not as tricky faces tend to be pretty consistent um i mean it's not that they're not hard i don't mean to to say they're not difficult but funnily enough hands well, are to detect to right to detect faces right, right. Yeah, yeah yeah for the most well, part that's, kind of follow yeah. a pattern but hands are funny because i mean if i spread out my hand uh and and extend all my fingers it's one silhouette but if i close my fan, hand into a fist or turn it around or hide my thumb i'm it's not it doesn't look anything like the 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 widespread version of it and you have to teach uh, the computer not only that both of these things are hands but that you have to continue to track this movement of of this hand throughout time despite the fact that from frame to frame it would look less like a hand here or there than one cat would ever look like another wow okay so uh when it comes to augmented reality are you worried about overstimulation? Is there a way to design this stuff to help people kind of focus on the task at hand rather than having kind of a zillion dashboards and blinking notifications? For augmented reality or virtual reality or both? Either, either. I mean, I guess I'm worried about, um, you know, nowadays with the phones, you kind of have this open system where anyone can add stuff to it and, you know, and um, rather than having a single 
uh, you know, designer say, okay, these are the elements that I want in your field of view. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think that it's sort of that dystopian feature that people bring up often as an example of how bad it could get. Um, yeah. But I just don't see it being a real issue today. What I'm much more concerned about than any sort of you put on the glasses and suddenly the world is this jangly mess of ads and overwhelming, you know, like garish. It's like you're, you're always in Vegas and Times Square. Right. Okay, if we got to that future, in a way, I, I would, I feel like, well, at least we made it, you know, cross-platform and had a way for our, you know, we like built up some standards that everyone could access. Um, but I think what, what is much more likely is that we end up with this, this is my real fear for augmented reality and mixed reality specifically, is that because right now we live in an era in which the technology is so expensive and the hardware has to be so small and specific that only the largest and, and, and wealthiest companies can afford to really take the plunge on this. Not, not even all of them are at this point. Um, I'm worried that we will set up a bunch of computers that are so single stack that they become their own little like kind of tendrils of what computing can be and die on the vine because they can't actually work with any other type of computer. Now, if I wear a HoloLens today, the first thing I want to do is be able to grab something from my computer and stick it in space and basically have an extended desktop, right? Not just be limited to my, um, my laptop, but, you know, say pin Slack up above it, puts, you know, Spotify over here and just basic, basic stuff, hand an email to someone else. And then that's how they get the email or I can share it with them. All of this basic stuff. There's no way to do that today because they are still all discrete computers, each running its own compute session. They do not interact with each other. They cannot talk with each other in any way other than how we have allowed computers to talk to each other through networks. So I think you're saying like it has to be a more distributed world, almost like a uh, massively multiplayer type of a situation. Exactly. Which is why I say now that I I, I tend to call it distributed computing because I want people to think about it, not so much as AR and XR as ends of themselves, but simply as yet another display type or perhaps a medium through which you can access your computer. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I don't really know how uh, enough, maybe I, I could be wrong about this, but like the, the massively multiplayer games, like those are hosted on a central server. So it's not even like a, a peer-to-peer you know, type situation. Exactly. Like a lot of these worlds probably would benefit greatly from that, but I don't know how you would get that to work. I mean, I think we need to start talking about it. I think we need to start articulating the use cases for it. And I think we need to start um, making it clear that, that this is the way we want to move forward with computers and then actually do it. The way computers are today is very rarely the result of long-term planning. It is very often reactive. And yet we've done some tremendous things pretty quickly. We wired everyone up to the internet really fast, right? Yeah. Like we uh, we moved hell and high water to lay down cable. Netflix alone is responsible for major infrastructure changes in large cities in order to pipe all of that video through. So if there's a need and a desire and the theory, the ability to make money, we have been able to affect major change in a matter of decades. I believe we can do the same again. So Sure, it's a difficult problem, but we solve difficult problems all the time. Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, as we're starting to wrap up, where do you think this tech is going, and what does mass consumer adoption look like? 
I think this technology is going the direction that we talked about and have been starting to touch on, that it starts to become, uh, rather than you on a computer doing a thing, you working with a variety of computing devices. Um, maybe your compute session is in the cloud and all the apps are actually running in the cloud and then they just pull down whatever information is needed on whatever device it is that you're currently looking at. Maybe like Google Stadia, the frames are actually even rendered in the cloud and very little compute is actually happening on the device that you're interacting with. So I'm imagining maybe there's some machine learning going on on the device, maybe some encryption, but the bulk of the heavy lifting and most of the compute is done in the cloud. Uh, so that, that's, that's my assumption about how things will be going in the future. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of your question. Oh, no. Uh, what does mass consumer adoption look like? Oh, same way as it always does. Everybody's got it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how do we get there, I think, is more the answer. There's a couple of really big... Um, I think we could have mass consumer adoption before we have it the way that I want it, the way that I describe now as a sort of a distributed computing system. Um, this will involve a few things. It will involve uh, it to be cheap, it to be reliable, uh, and it to be slightly better than the alternative. It doesn't have to be too much better. That is pretty much, I, I'm playing it super safe. That is just true of, of the way computers have always been. Um, sure, yeah. So I think for augmented reality headsets, this means the field of view will have to be substantially better. They don't really have to be that much better on in terms of input, although for some reason they all really want to push the input types, which I think, well, whatever. You know, it's up to them. They got their money and they can do what they want with it. Yeah. You mentioned like getting kind of dizzy from that. I I mean, I used oh. them very briefly and I didn't get dizzy, but, you know, using oh. it for more than a few minutes might be a different story. Let me just explain. Um, most virtual reality, augmented reality headsets on the market today would not make you sick. Um hmm. And, and almost no augmented reality headsets or, or uh, MR. Uh, the virtual reality headsets used to make people sick earlier on in in part because computers were not fast enough to render the frames quickly enough. Uh, and also because the um, we hadn't figured out some some things about how OLEDs work in the display to, to, um, to make sure that uh, there wasn't sort of a ghosting effect on a per frame basis. Frame, frame rate makes you sick. And that's actually true on regular consoles as well. If it seems like it's too jaggedy or slow, your brain starts to think you've been poisoned. That rarely happens today. Uh, too low of a frame rate. Yeah. Is, what I was talking okay. about is um, input types. Like people really want to have voice. It's not ready yet. They really want to have gestures. They're not ready yet. And I don't know if there'll ever be the best case scenario for a lot of what people want to use them for. So, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, keywords are great. We should use keyboards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, keyboards are good for a lot of things. I I have to say, like, this conversation has gotten me thinking about a lot of things that um, <laughs> it's opened up whole new areas of, like, thought that I'm going to have to explore over the next few episodes of The Local Maximum because this is – I haven't thought enough about this stuff and just thinking about the idea of distributed virtual reality or um, – or, or something like, you know, these, these kind of seamless interfaces is not something I've discussed before. And this is actually getting me really excited. Like I haven't, uh, um, I haven't thought about it in quite the way that, 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 that you've been talking about it. So um, hopefully this is, uh, you know, not the last time we talk about AR, VR on the local maximum. Uh, before we go, 
Do you have any uh, last thoughts uh, that you haven't gotten to say yet? And where can we learn about more about this and you and your work? Sure. Um, I guess my final thought would be that when I talk to people about augmented and virtual reality, they tend to think of it, A, as kind of a different world, uh, not just a computer, but it is in the end just a computer. So think about, I would, I would love for everyone to do this. Think about at the end of your life, when you are 80 years old, how do you want computers to be? I really want people to come up with their own vision for themselves. We have enough Black Mirror. We have enough Marvel movies. We have enough different examples from media that might not actually be what it is that you really want. And when it comes to figuring out the future of computers, you need a strong and compelling vision in order to build it. I have my own, but I think everyone should really have a sense of what it is they want from these devices that you use every day for hours a day and your children will use and your grandchildren will use. I want to hear what people truly want out of computers because prior to this generation, I think people found computers to be a thing that kind of happened to them and was just there and not something that they could truly own or do anything with. Um, in terms of where to find out more, uh, we actually have a new website going up uh, on Unity about Project Mars, which is our mixed and augmented reality tooling set that we're building right now. Uh, we also have a series of blog posts about Editor XR, which was uh, Unity or is a Unity extension that is open source and available on GitHub to download under uh, an X11 license that allows anyone to go into the scene view in Unity and see everything in virtual reality and edit it and play with it and do whatever you want with it. Um, All right, great. And yeah. I'll get the proper links from you and I'll put them up at localmaxradio.com slash 79. Okay, great. All right. Timothy West, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. All right. Next week, if I can grab Aaron, it's time for another tech news update. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.